Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that is uniquely susceptible to widows and spinsters. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a book collector, and a book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Emma. I'm a law librarian writing about justice and romance on the substack Restorative Romance, and I'm also on Book Talk under the name M. Kick. My name is Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heyman Reads. Today, we're going to talk about one of historical romance's favorite type of characters, the rake. Emma, I'm going to hand it to you to give us the etymology of the word. So rake is short for rake hell. It comes from the phrase to rake hell, meaning to search through with a literal rake, like the kind you would use for leaves. You're searching through hell for your behaviors. So to rake hell becomes rake hell becomes rake. And a rake is just like a fashionable man who is promiscuous and indulgent in his behaviors. Beth is going to read an explanation of who exactly is a rake from The Lives of English Rakes by Fergus Linane. He was usually a cynical exploiter of women, often a reckless gambler, sometimes a touchy egoist, quick to take offense and to seek redress in duels. He could be a good friend and a bad enemy. He was often aristocratic and sometimes rich. He spent his life in a frenzy of sexual pursuits, gambling, drinking, duels, and brawls, He treated his equals with cold disdain and his inferiors with dangerous contempt. In historical romance, rake is often a shorthand for an archetype. If an author calls a character a rake, you get a general idea of what their personality is going to be like and what type of journey they're going to go on to find love. That said, not all rakes are built the same. There are charming rakes, evil rakes, and rakes that drink themselves into oblivion. There are rakes that use their aristocratic power as a cudgel, and rakes that go along to get along. There's room for all types of rakes in historical romance, so that's why in this episode, we're going to attempt to categorize every type of historical romance rake. Before we get started with identifying and categorizing rakes, let's talk a little bit more generally. When I say the word rake, is there a character that comes to your mind first? My recency bias is showing here, but Sebastian from To Have and To Hold, uh, we will be talking about him here, and fondly, Courtney from Ruin of a Rake. I think for me, maybe unfortunately, I think of Lisa Kleypas's rakes, who I think were the first ones that I read that did things that I sort of found unforgivable, at least in terms of reforming or reformed rakes. But I also think of Loretta Chase's Lord of Scoundrels and The Last Hellion, um, because I use Dane and Veer as sort of yardsticks for my rakes, especially because they're two different flavors. One hates his dad and one hates himself. Charles. <laughs> for, is this going to surprise you? For me, it's Graham from Black Silk. <laughs> it's kind of like that, like, when you're queer, a lot of times people are like, do you have a crush on this person or do you want to be this person? And that's kind of like how I feel about Gra- Like, I want to be Graham, I think. Right. And so Graham <laughs> is kind of like always in my mind. I identify so strongly with him. Graham is a good rake to aspire to. So good yeah. taste, honestly. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel like Chels feels about Graham the way I feel about Harry Styles, who is the only Graham is the only hero I've ever thought of Harry Styles in connection with. I'm like, do I want to like look like him or do I want to date him? 
I definitely want to dress like him either way. Right, um, right. But yeah, Graham is like a Harry Styles rake. <laughs> yeah, you told me you were like, Graham is Harry Styles plus 10 years. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> All the rings. I know. That's like, I was just like, oh my gosh, he absolutely is. Um, so why do you think rakes are so prevalent in historical romance? I just, they're so fun, right? Like... <laughs> Like they're they're um we want someone to have done something bad in a fun way, and I think most rakes fit into that category. We're gonna talk about some that do things that are bad things in not a fun way or bad things that are unforgivable, but the sort of prototypical rake in is indulging in a thing, often often behaviors that maybe would not be reviled today, but sort of because of the ton we don't like them in in the book that we're or the society doesn't like them in the book that we're reading. So it's kind of like they're they're cheeky and fun on a, a sort of base level, but then they sometimes get pushed to the extremes. Yeah, it's kind of in line with what I was was thinking. And then also they have a fun character journey because they often start off in like this not so great place. And then by the end of the book it's really satisfying to watch them change. Especially and I think this is kind of particular to romance because there's so much dual point of view where you can also view this journey through someone else's eyes often. So it's an interesting perspective to get, I think. Yeah, I had rakes are fun with three exclamation marks. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I agree. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, like, we're obviously, you're asking the reformed rakes why rakes are great. Yeah. So I... It's about I, the journey. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that question might have been, maybe that was a bit silly, but it's cool. It's cool. We're no, going. No, it's not. It. It's not. Um, yeah, so Emma's going to kick us off with our first type of rake, which is named after us, not the other way around. It's the reformed <laughs> <Obviously>. rake. <laughs> Yeah, the reformed rake. That's us. Um, so the saying reformed rakes make the best husbands is often included in Regency romances. Violet Bridgerton says it in the first season of Bridgerton, though that's actually cribbed from the Viscount who loved me. Uh, but the phrase dates back to at least 1748, where it appeared in the preface of Clarissa by Samuel Richardson. But Richardson is actually warding against the aphorism. The plot of Clarissa suggests that there is no reforming a rake outside of his death. Most rakes reform somewhat over the course of their respective books. This is the narrative thrust of redemption. But some rakes start their romance reformed and have to work to repair a reputation that no longer reflects their inner selves or the place they occupy in society. Narratively, I think in order for this to happen, there usually has to be some history, whether the reader or the heroine is immediately privy to it or not. Both of my examples involves this sort of shared history with different knowledge bases about the rake between the heroine and the reader. My favorite example of a rake, though I might call him a failed rake, who is fully reformed at the beginning of his book is West Ravenel from the Lisa Claypus's Ravenel series. The younger brother of the new Earl of Trentham, we meet West in Devon's book, and he's the good time brother who is confused by Devon's sudden taking up of duty that he inherits. But while Devon was very, very good at being a rake, West is not great at it. He struggles with overindulgence of all his vices and gains a reputation more of buffoonery than suave seduction. The first four books are filled with moments where West steps up as a friend to the women in his life. Plus, the country seat of the title, the Devon inherits, gives West a place away from his London vices to practice not being a wreck. A big part of West's redemption is his new occupation, land manager for the Eversby Priory Estate. The London wreck takes to farming like a fish to water. The redemptive power of land management is a big theme for Clapas. 
But when we get to his book, he's confronted with the kind of origin of his worst self. The widow of a bullying victim from his school days is now his cousin-in-law, and they have to spend the week together for a wedding. For so much of the series, the only female reflections of West's self back to him have been newly acquired family members who adore him. But Phoebe has thought the worst of him since childhood, when she heard stories from her sweetheart about his schoolyard bully. West's reformation is complete by the time the book starts, but he first has to restore his reputation with Phoebe, and then the main conflict between the couple centers on his lingering reputation and what that would mean for her two sons and any future children they have. The Countess Conspiracy by Courtney Milan also establishes a history of a reformed rake through a series. In a series centered on a group that call themselves the Brothers Sinister, this book is the third in the series and features the last member of the group, Sebastian Malher, and an honorary member, Violet, Countess of Cambury. Sebastian and Violet have known each other since they were children and have been best friends for as long. Violet is prickly, both by nature and as a result of her marriage to the Earl at a fairly young age. Sebastian has a long reputation as a rake, which serves Violet's purpose, which is using him as a cover for the publication of her scientific research about reproduction and genes. Sebastian's sexual reputation is not damaged by him talking about mating and reproduction in academic settings. But at the beginning of the book, his brother puts his foot down about Sebastian's access to his nephew, so Sebastian wants to give up the scheme. Violet does not grasp the reasons for Sebastian's willingness to go along with the scheme from the beginning. He's been in love with her their entire lives. Slightly younger than her, he could not propose in earnest before she married, though he did try. We don't really see Sebastian do rakish things. He's not cavorting with other women. The third act conflict does not come from a regression into his rake self. Instead, both Sebastian and Violet have to learn to trust their experiences over each other's reputation so that they can get to a place of understanding and equilibrium. What is it about reformed rakes and land management? <laughs> it's like he's, so, he, he, he's not suited to London. Like, how are we going to fix him? It's like he needs to become a farmer. Yeah, like because like I I kind of like think of like Theo from A Lady Awakened is also I was just gonna say that. Sorry, go <laughs> yeah, ahead. No, I mean like I also think because like I think of him as like cut from the West cloth, like yes. in the fact that it's just like mm-hmm. you you're kind of fucking up here, man. Like you need to yeah. go to the country. Go to the country. Like it's something about like it's very English and very. Um, mm-hmm very conservative in a way. I think Cecilia Grant's take on it is less conservative than Kleypas's, but something about returning to the land is this very like, oh, this will fix the problems. Like London is bad. That's where people go to become rakes. Lee Kleypas has at least two. Leo Hathaway is also like this. Like once they put him in charge of the house, he's like, I'm going to stop yeah. being an alcoholic, which also what like what Wes does. <laughs> um, he's right. like suddenly the alcoholism is no longer an issue. But yeah, something about like tilling the land and like having having a task in front of you, which I think, yeah, the I think the occupation and especially in the Countess conspiracy, it's kind of the opposite. Like Sebastian has been given this occupation that suits his rakishness and mm-hmm. now he wants to give up the occupation. So Milan sort of turns that like industry on its head of like how, how that relates to the reformed rakishness reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like when they're managing land it's not just that they're managing land and getting good at it they also have to be innovative in a type of way like am i remembering that correctly like like west has some sort of like new farm equipment yeah they're they're always like interested they're like oh we're the, the the because i'm a rake and i'm like learning the industry i'm like willing to take up like a mechanical like mm-hmm. like I can't even think of a farm tool. <laughs> um, a, That's how a, far a we are. Rake. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like because they're because they're a renegade in their like London life. They're somehow more suited for Victorian land management because they need to. 
be like this combination of industry and farming. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to keep I think Elizabeth Hoyt has some books like this, too. The, actually, the one of the we're going to talk about later with a different type of rake. Notorious Pleasures also deals with a rake who's like willing to take on technology. <laughs> um, so yeah, something about rakes and, and, and mechanics. <laughs> one thing I wanted to say about reformed like a reformed rake is so often I will see people like complaining about a character is bad or like why is this character in this book or is doing bad things and I'm like as we constantly harp on I'm like this person has to start in like a not good place and it's funny to me because I feel like a lot of people really love the reformed rake especially Mm -hmm. but I'm like we need a reformation to actually kind of happen Right. I don't think it's a coincidence that the two I, – I, I love both Devil's Daughter. I didn't even say West book's name. It's Devil's Daughter is his title, but he's in the whole Ravenel right. series. I don't think it's a coincidence that both of those books that I enjoy are books where it's a part of a series because I think there are reformed rakes who it's like there's this sense that like something happened to them in the past. But if it's not part mm-hmm. of the series, I'm way less interested in someone who starts as a reformed rake, that these are much more successful for me as a reader when you sort of see them doing the reformation – in the earlier parts of the series. And you're like, okay, now it's time for them to have a romance. That's much more interesting than someone who just is like, starts as like, oh, he has a rakish reputation, but we don't ever, never actually get to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like what is your character arc? It's just like a flat line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just. Yeah, and then even like, even if they are reformed or once they do reform, which is something that kind of comes up in like um, the reformed rake characters is that like they still have the like lingering effects of their reputation that they kind of have mm-hmm. to manage mm-hmm. like in yeah. their own sense of self-worth sometimes and sometimes in their partner's mm-hmm. eyes. Yeah. Um, so it, it does still kind of create conflict either way. But yeah, we pro rakes. We're pro rakes. You can't tell. <laughs> yes. Rakes in full rake yeah. mode. Okay. I'll move on to the next section. We call this rake the charmer. So this character often has a charming facade to hide who they really are. Now, charming characters don't all have a facade, but a charming rake often operates this way. They've created a persona based on their charm or charisma. So much of the book is interrogating the origins or reasons for that persona. They might even be so charming no one would level the rake charge at them. Honestly, I'm surprised we won't have more Sherry Thomas on this. (laughs) I will start with The Luckiest Lady in London by Sherry Thomas. And one of the most charming rakes, Felix Rivendale, has styled himself as the ideal gentleman. Now, his story begins with his parents' terrible marriage and his decision to never put himself at the mercy of someone through love. His plan is to marry when he's 40 to someone who's not bright so he can control them. Felix is well-liked in society, and he's definitely a prize on the marriage market. When he first meets Louisa Cantwell, she gets an accurate measure of him fairly quickly. And this is a quote from the book, that, like her observation. A true gentleman would have kept that observation to himself, but she already knew that he was no gentleman. He must have sold his soul to the devil for everyone else to continue to think of him as the epitome of gentlemanliness. Felix initially offers for her to be his mistress, and she declines. Propelled by his feelings and little understanding of those feelings, he proposes marriage and she accepts. After their marriage, Felix reorients himself back to the ideal gentleman persona since he's alarmed by how much he does for Louisa. He hasn't done the work yet of internal interrogation, and he harms Louisa in reverting to his facade. I also have one other example that's a little bit different from... The Ideal Gentleman, and it comes from Forbidden by Beverly Jenkins. 
Ryan Fontaine, a formerly enslaved man, is passing for white in, a, in small town Nevada. He rescues Edie Carmichael from the desert heat after she's been robbed again and nurses her back to health. Ryan purposely leverages his privilege so he can do good for the black community. Unlike Felix, whose facade grants him emotional distance for fear of falling in love, Ryan's facade is anchored in survival. He's charming because he needs to be charming to placate the people around him. Jenkins references his time as an enslaved person and how he had adopt and how he had to adopt a mask as he endured the daily slights and ill treatment as if he were made of wood. Falling for Edie, a black woman, someone who looks like she's outside of his race, makes him question what he's given up. He's engaged to a shallow white woman in town, and he wonders if he can marry a racist, have kids with someone who would inevitably pass that hate on to their children. He's well-liked in the black community, but obviously he can't acknowledge them as his own community. Jenkins shows us that Ryan has a lot to gain by reintegrating into his community while not shying away from the re repercussions of doing so. While I've used two examples of charming facades, I think other charming rakes are genuinely charming and it's not a mask. <laughs> After I gave evidence to the contrary. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting that both of those characters are, they're being, they're being charming for different reasons. Yeah, so I guess starting with uh, The Luckiest Lady in London, um, the thing that I remember about that, and that always makes me laugh, is just like how weird it was when Louisa and Felix are kind of like seeing each other for who they really are. Like, I believe it was just like something like totally benign that Felix was, uh, he was like, oh, she's not responding the way that she's supposed to via my concerted <laughs> yeah. efforts, and therefore yeah. I need to win her over completely. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, she almost immediately thinks that he's seen right through her, and that's why she is so, like, takes a step back. Like, she doesn't want to get close to him because she's like, oh, he sees me for who I am because mm -hmm. she doesn't have a lot of money. She's kind of, she's not, like, a social climber in the truest sense. Like, she's doing it because she's kind of the best chance her family has, mm -hmm. so that's really why she's on the marriage market, and she sees Felix as someone way, way outside. Like, he's not going to... I think she sees him for who he is, and she's like, I cannot get this guy, so I'm just going to ignore him. Yeah, I think for both of these, it's I think, again, we talked about dual POV a little bit with how that functions for rakes. I just read Forbidden for the first time, and something that I was surprised at is how often Ryan sort of like doesn't realize the consequences of what he's doing like he as he's like yeah. flirting with Edie he's not really thinking about like the consequences for her because he sort of is so used to living as a white man and for a while for when I was reading it I thought like oh it's weird that this is like not coming up for him but it's like I think the dual POV works where it's like yeah like sometimes when you're living a facade you're you sort of like lose yourself a little bit and that's really explored in forbidden and i think it comes up for felix as well that like he when he meets this other person who does see him for who he is and he trusts to sort of explain himself to her for both of them it's like that dual pov sort of shifts and it really both books feel like a very like limited dual pov like neither rake is like really aware of their whole feelings or the consequences of all their actions or how it will affect someone else the sort of facade that they're living in like felix thinks that he could just marry someone and just control her like that's that's a, a, a sort of objective stance that he has and you're like that's a very cruel thing to think and I don't know if he actually would have like followed through with it but he's sort of that's the world he's operating in and similarly with Ryan he thinks that he can like sort of like white knuckle it and marry this racist woman 
And it's like, yeah. that, would, that would be an untenable situation for him. But because he's been living this facade, they both think that they could do this thing. Um, and the dual POV really serves that because you, you're reminded how limited sort of their, they've, they've limited their own view to serve this facade that's like untenable, essentially. Yeah, I think that's why I didn't like Ryan as much. Like, he's not an unlikable character, but the the times that he puts like Edie in danger by like his presence, I was like, "Do you? What are you doing?" And I think as I was like preparing for this episode, it made me reevaluate him a little bit more. It's just he's been a step removed from his community. Right, he does for so long. He's like he's forgotten like what it's like, yeah. like what the danger that he he's putting her in because he passes and she doesn't. Um, yeah, there's like a, someone else in the community that is interested in Edie, like comes up to him and is like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. <laughs> and I was rooting for that right. guy. I, I was lo- like, I yeah, Ryan, what are you doing? <laughs> and like, but I'm glad he does like reintegrate back in his community. Yeah. Sorry, no, no yeah, else. no, that's kind of what I was because, um, yeah, I, I did kind of have this like when you're talking about like Ryan's fiance. um, I was kind of like, what is he gaining from this scenario? Because, like, if I'm remembering correctly, like, he was just as well-established as this woman's father. So it wasn't really like it was going to give him, like, a leg up or kind of anything. So it kind of went on longer than I was expecting it to, just because, like, there didn't really seem like so much of an upside for him. But Mm -hmm. I think it also could just be because, like, he's just, like, he's doing kind of like what he thinks he should be doing based on like the way that he's been living. Living the facade. It's like, he doesn't think like he can have a full life. And I think Felix is similar. Like why he's not, he's not interested in like even a a marriage of convenience, really. Mm -hmm. He's not even interested in like an equitable marriage of convenience, which is sort of what um, is sort of how they fall into the relationship in the luckiest lady. He's interested in a marriage where he would like control his younger wife. So it's like neither of them, I think, can conceptualize like an equitable relationship because they're living as like half selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, Felix seemed quite purposeless, too. And I think that's kind of like why yeah. uh, Louisa could easily clock him for what he was because like she's <laughs> she's got her mayonnaise hair and her bust enhancer. And she's like, all, yeah. she's, she's so familiar with artifice. Yeah, she spots it in someone else pretty quick. She's like, mm, we're doing the same thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to move on to loquacious weirdo? Yeah. My favorite. Yeah, this is my favorite, and it's also, consequently, the longest section that we have. <laughs> That's fine. That's loquacious fine. weirdo. I'll be candid that I created this category with Anne Stewart in mind, because pretty much all of her heroes that I've read could be referred to as loquacious weirdos. Their intentions are similar to that of the malevolent seducer, which we'll get to later, but any bad act is vastly overshadowed by their incessant villainous monologuing and innate showmanship. So there's a 90s essay anthology of writing on romance, which I'll reference multiple times in this episode, uh, by romance writers called Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women. Anne Stewart's essay called Legends of Seductive Elegance is particularly illuminating. Uh, This is what she says about her heroes. This is no truck driver with ready fists. This is a man of murderous elegance, Cary Grant and Notorious, a man who knows the rules and ignores them, a man whose sense of honor and decency is almost non-existent, a man with a dark midnight of the soul. The heroine can either bring light into the darkness or risk suffocating in the blackness of his all-encompassing despair. 
There is no room for gentle couplings beneath the starry sky. Each coming together must have the resonance of eternity. Stewart also wrote vampire romances, and her essay is about the dangerous lover, the vampiric myth. But as you can tell by her quote, there is a significant element of performance. Her heroes are men who know the rules and ignore them, but they're also going to tell you in elaborate, excruciating detail that they're ignoring the rules. There's no room for subtext, but honestly, you don't want it here because the loquacious weirdo has such a fun way with words. Uh, So my first uh, book is Ruthless by Anne Stewart. And as I mentioned, I can pretty much slot any of Stewart's heroes into the loquacious weirdo category, including the vengeful Nicholas Blackthorne in Rose at Midnight and the bloodthirsty Kaloran in To Love a Dark Lord. Here, I'm going to focus on Viscount Rohan from the book Ruthless. So Viscount Rohan runs a Hellfire Club type gathering called Heavenly Host, and when we meet him, he is bored out of his mind by the depravity around him. Drugs, orgies, violence, he's seen it all, and he's become immune to salacious spectacle. Eleanor, the heroine, lives with her mother and sister in abject poverty. Eleanor's mother is cruel to Eleanor and exceedingly irresponsible with money and has a sexually transmitted disease that is killing her and causing her to act even more erratically. So Eleanor, although she's very young, is the caretaker of the family. When her mother disappears with much-needed funds to attend the party at Heavenly Host, Eleanor goes after her. She's accosted by security and brought to Viscount Rohan, who takes an immediate interest in Eleanor. She's not particularly sheltered because of how poor she is, but she's still a very young woman and a virgin. She's sharp-tongued, clever, and has what Rohan repeatedly calls a nose of consequence that keeps her from being beautiful but makes her visually arresting. So Rohan wants Eleanor, and his strategy is basically to overwhelm her with unwanted gifts, show up where she's going to be, and talk and talk and talk. When he's first warning her about how evil he is, he says... Don't look so horrified, sweeting. Surely you don't mistake my interest in you as any humanitarian behavior on my part. I don't give a damn if your mother dies, and I don't let myself be distracted from my activities unless there's something I want more. That would be you. So out of all of the Anne Stewart books to pick from to represent Loquacious Weirdo, I picked Ruthless because it's my favorite, and also because there's a moment where Stewart lampshades Rohan's monologue. This is a quote from after a scene where Rohan teaches Eleanor how to pleasure herself. That's all I'm going to get, isn't it, ma petite? I expect you to want more, but you'd never admit to it. I shall now endeavor to catch some much-needed sleep and spare you maidenly blushes. Unless you'd consider having a second lesson? No? I thought not. I have two more days of carousing left, and at my advanced age, I need my strength. He smiled at her with angelic innocence. Cat got your tongue, my pet? And then Eleanor responds with, if you sleep, you'll stop talking, which would be a blessing. (laughs) I was always waiting for an Ann Stewart heroine to say that. And when she finally did, I was like, yes. That's funny. Um, And then the next book... uh, One of my favorite books, uh, The Flesh and the Devil by Teresa Dennis. Um, So The Flesh and the Devil is a bodice ripper and gothic romance set in Spain post-Inquisition. Felipe from The Flesh and the Devil is one of the most memorable historical romance characters I've ever read because everything he says is extremely metal. 
When we meet him, he's a servant, but you don't know that something is a bit off because everyone, including his employers, are a little bit unsettled and intimidated by him. His love interest, Juana, is set to marry the Duke, the man that Felipe works for, but Juana has been in love with her childhood sweetheart, Jaime. When Jaime comes to rescue Juana, there's a scene where he leads her on a path through mud. He won't touch her or carry her as it's improper, so Juana gets soaked. Later, Felipe taunts Juana about Jaime's chivalry, and she says, He would not touch me for fear of blemishing my honor. You would not understand that. And then Felipe responds, I have lived in Spain since I was 12 years old, Juana, and I know your codes well enough, but I do not condone them when they lead to folly. Your doctors will not tend to dying girl if she is not of birth high enough to suit them. And then they vie for each other to take the news of her death to greater folk. Your priests will torture any man or woman in the name of testing their faith, but they will not kill. They are too merciful. They abandon their victims to the secular arm to met out death. But it is the church herself that swallows the lands and goods that come with them. Your nobles cluster about the king, squandering all they have while their lands starve and call it privilege. And a man will allow a woman to wade through mire, because to touch her is against etiquette. So, unlike Anne Stewart's loquacious weirdos, Felipe's diatribes have a more poignant social and political commentary. He exists in a liminal space between servant and aristocrat, and has a rather horrifying backstory thanks to the cruelty of the church during the Inquisition. So there's this perspective, and everything he says is more cutting, but that doesn't stop him from waxing poetic about how monstrous he is. This is my favorite quote from the entire book. It's Felipe's roundabout way of declaring his love for Juana. Kindness is a painless thing to give, and easy, a sop to those you do not need. Friendship and kindness have naught to do with this. I am not kind to the air I breathe, nor the food I eat, nor to you. Very it's metal. so metal. <laughs> I'm like, dang. <laughs> I just, the showmanship is really what sets it apart from any other type of rake. Like, no rakes talk like this. <laughs> well, so often the thing with rakes is, like, you're begging them to, like, articulate something. You're like, oh, like, they're the, like, strong, silent type. And they, they, they don't right. never, never articulating their feelings. It's like, well, do you really want them to say what they're feeling? Because sometimes it's really weird. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> I like Dan Stewart's essay, like the quote you read, like murderous elegance, like what <laughs> combination. <laughs> but I, what, while you were like explaining this category, I think one character dynamic that I really like, I think a lot of people like is, and I feel like this fits with the loquacious, loquacious weirdos where you have like your dark, darker character and characters like in the light and just like where they cross and like who compromises and answering those questions is can turn into a very interesting story yeah and i love that she she mentioned uh carrie grant and notorious which is like my favorite alfred hitchcock movie but i also love that she sort of links carrie grant in that movie to like a villainous like, hero because he's mm-hmm. he, he in that movie is much if you, if you watch it without that perspective like he he very easily could be like the hero like he's not the the villain of the movie he's the romantic lead but he's also very manipulative and like controlling in a way that like could be read straight or could be read in this sort of like uh, this archetype of sort of villainous hero, hero who does bad things to the heroine. Because the heroine in that movie, Ingrid Bergman, also I think could be considered like almost like a Ray Kess. Like when we, she, she reminds me a lot of 
Sarah in the Raycast when we talk about her later, um, who's like indulgent and is trying to like recover herself. Um, what happens when like a Raycast meets a loquacious, loquacious weirdo is kind of notorious. One thing that I really love about this is that it kind of kind of goes a little bit against the show. Don't tell. <laughs> it's just it's so much tell. Um, but it's it, it's really about like how fun and amazing and like kind of how much dialogue can move the story forward. Well, I think telling works when the actions line up with what the character is saying. Mm-hmm. So it's not like never tell. I think sometimes, and I, I don't think this is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I'm just like jumping off of it. That I think sometimes get people get so hung up on showing, but I'm like telling is still good. I think people get will say that this book was bad, that it was telling instead of showing is when your character's actions are not matching up like with what they're saying. Like, I'm telling you one way that I'm this one way, but I'm acting completely opposite. Mm-hmm. And it's not like they're, you can tell that they're lying or something. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go Yeah, ahead, but yeah, also in romance, it's like even if there's a disconnect between how the character is describing themselves and their own motivations, because of the dual POV and the focus on the relationship, it's like that's also an interesting tension that can be intentional yeah. rather than like a mismatch. Um, yeah, that it's yeah, that it makes sense for kind of like our miscommunication episode. It's like this. This is a genre about relationships. Like, how do you, you you're talking to each other? There's going to be some telling, but how does that telling match up with match up or mismatch with the actions that you you take um, and like resolving those two things? And I feel like this kind of character. It's not like I feel like other rake arcs there is going to come to a point where a lot of them are reformed at the end but i don't think this is going to no. be the end point for a lot of these <laughs> characters it's just that like they are they make the relationship work that's the that's the end goal yeah i think you definitely got like the spirit of it so like ann stewart and uh and of course like Teresa dennis who wrote the flesh and the devil like they're primarily interested in like i wouldn't I, I guess I think like Anne Stewart's books are kind of like on the tip of bodice rippers. Like I don't think you would normally call them mm-hmm. that, but they're definitely like a lot heavier and darker. And they're not. Uh, Anne Stewart does not want to reform her characters. Anne wants to like yeah. drag her characters kind of like to the same level, and that's kind of like mm-hmm. I think kind of like a, a theme of gothic romance in general is that uh, it's not necessarily like how do these characters become good together. It's kind of like how do these characters realize that like actually they are on the same level, maybe a little bit in maybe a way that they didn't expect to be. Um, so The Flesh and the Devil is actually a really good example of that because uh, Juana has all of these ideas about honor and morality. And then Felipe, which, like, as you can tell from his first uh, big monologue that I read, like, he has, like, a lot of political reasons. That's just, like, poking a hole in her balloon. Um, <laughs> but, like, Juana... When she, she she wants to get back to her family, she wants to be a fancy lady, she wants to get out of this situation, and like her reconciling her love with Felipe, and she never has any illusions about who or what Felipe is. Like he's a bad person. Like he's 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 as metal as he sounds. He's like he's a very bad person. Um, but like her, her the end arc of her love story is her realizing that they are one and the same. And I think that's a very gothic romance thing. I think that the loquacious weirdo, like in general, like um, because it's you have so much fun where you start. Why would you want to kind of leave this this level? Speaking of not great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk about another sort of bad guy rake on the malevolent seducer. 
I would describe a malevolent seducer as a hero whose interests are in extreme opposition to the heroine, particularly when it comes to her livelihood or sense of self. So Sebastian Verlaine into Heaven to Hold is a rake who seduces to enact harm, push boundaries, and gain information. This book is about a stripper since Sebastian does assault the heroine, Rachel. He's a Viscount who serves as a magistrate. He takes Rachel into his home after she's arrested for vagrancy post-release from prison for killing her husband, with a seemingly understood condition that he will take advantage of her. Angela Toscana, in her article, A Parody of Love, The Narrative Use of Rape in Popular Romance, calls the assault by Sebastian in the book an inquisitional rape. She distinguishes rape of coercion from other types of rape in popular romance by saying, quote, In the rape of coercion, the hero wants a response from the heroine because it is in her dialogue with him that her identity is revealed. But instead of waiting for her freely to speak to him, the hero forces the heroine to respond to his sexual and verbal assault. I think this sort of information gathering is key to the malevolent seducer type, whether that initial seduction is characterized as coercive or consensual. Into Heaven to Hold, Sebastian is fascinated by Rachel's locked mind. She refuses to disclose information about her accusation of murder or the details of abuse she suffered during her first marriage. Toscano suggests that Sebastian, and I'm extending this to all malevolent seducers, experiences a metaphorical death when he engages in this probing violence, the death of his self, since he is admitting that he wants the knowledge of the other. The whole article is really good, and we'll link it in the show notes. I think a non-bodice ripper example of the malevolent seducer is Devin Ravenel of Cold-Hearted Rake, West Ravenel's older brother. He and Sebastian have a lot in common. Fascination with the love interest past, which includes an abusive marriage, control over where the heroine is living, and an initial extreme disinterest in the responsibility that accompanies their title. Devin and Kathleen's relationship in the book is not characterized as coercive, but he is seducing her while he has an interest in extreme opposition to her own. He wants to sell Everbsby Priory. She wants to stay. She is worried about his discovering the non-consummation of her marriage, which could lose her the rights to the dower. Devin is trying to make sense of his new role as Earl and what that means for his relationship to people, including women. His seduction of Kathleen is the sort of questioning of what he, how, is, how he relates to women and the information about her past and her, her first marriage. Yeah. Do want to talk about John Malkovich? I do want to talk about John liaisons. Malkovich and Dangerous Liaisons because he's like, he's like, I, I think in my mind, like the malevolent seducer, because like um, kind of as you mentioned, like the malevolent seducer is kind of like the I feel like they're kind of like the worst case scenario when it comes to rakes. Like they um, they're not upfront about anything. There's um, a, an extra level of coercion and manipulation um, that goes mm-hmm. with them because they they and he has a, a vastly different goal than the heroine. And, and so he is, has to convince her that it's okay or that like just to go along or to, to do something to rope them in. And I think like that's kind of like what makes to have and to hold so hard to read at parts, but also just like so kind of compelling is the way that Patricia Gaffney uh, makes it so clear. I think that that's kind of really the strength of to have and to hold is that she uh, wants you to be aware that Sebastian is a hundred percent aware and a hundred percent intentional about what he's doing. And then Rachel also knows that she doesn't really have a choice that she's being manipulated into this like very specific circumstance, not just with the initial manipulation, which is Sebastian getting Rachel into his home, but like the continuous manipulations, the way that he, puts her in situations that would make her uncomfortable um, to test her boundaries and to push and pull at her. 
Yeah, and I think the power dynamic of the malevolent seducer makes sense, like, why it's so often this, like, information-gathering seduction. Because if in this extreme power dynamic where you sort of take the gender roles of historical romance and push them to their extreme, often the heroine is retaining power by keeping information up from the hero. Like, Kathleen not telling Devin that her first relationship was unconsummated, that it's like this is a big like vulnerability for her because mm-hmm. she could be like legally kicked out of the house if it was turned out that the marriage wasn't real. And Rachel like is like this sort of self-protection of where she just like doesn't trust anyone to know about the circumstances of the abuse of her first marriage that they that the the rakes only get that information once they've established like trust and sort of had to either seduce it's um them sort of malevolently or demonstrated some sort of earning of the trust. But yeah, that 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 they're they're probing the heroines for like access for the one thing that they wouldn't normally have access to. Like they have access to their bodies, they have access to power over them, but they don't have access to their minds and like the secrets that they keep. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you can definitely see it into having to hold in Rachel's story because when people discovered what happened, like with her first husband, like the abuse that he wrought on her, that's kind of what landed her. In jail, they're like, well, clearly she's a suspect because <laughs> right. she was treated so badly. So I can understand the extreme reaction on top of being in jail for 10 years and all the trauma she suffered there to like hold on to that information because it was used against her in the past. When we went through malevolent seducers, none of us brought up what is most likely the most common scenario of malevolent seducer, which is a rake sleeping with someone's sister for revenge. (laughs) Uh, Revenge in general, even. Uh, So there's the dark romance, erotic historical romance duet from Victoria Vale, uh, the villain and the dove that kind of take on the setup of uh, Emma, you mentioned seven nights in a rogue's bed by Anna Campbell. It's like it's like what if that was actually a real setup? is this duology. It takes it to the natural conclusion where the heroine is coerced into sleeping with and staying with the hero as part of the hero's revenge scheme against her brother. Uh, But even historical romances that aren't dark romances or bodice rippers, like that are more kind of like in the Lisa Kleypas, or that is actually a Lisa Kleypas, um, is like McKenna from Lisa Kleypas' Again the Magic, where he has like a half-baked revenge plot against Aline that uh, includes seducing her. Uh, so like mm-hmm. he's like I'm, I hate her so much like I have to fall I have to fall in love with her again. <laughs> I was just like when I was reading that I was like what was your revenge plan exactly yeah. <laughs> um but like the 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 revenge against like uh, it's usually like it's like a a man in the family had done something mm-hmm. wrong and like you have to get revenge and so you're gonna sleep with their sister yeah, something about I did think about McKenna um, as like how does McKenna fit into Lisa Kleypas's rakes? I don't know if Kleypas would call McKenna a rake. He's not really, um, because, I don't think, because he's like it's like pointed, uh-huh. and so something about that where it's like McKenna, McKenna obviously like does the Kleypas thing where he like he's like oh like I've had so many lovers like I'm so tall, um, <laughs> <laughs> but his like rakishness is not something that he has to like overcome. It's like he he's so like revenge focused, and I don't know if like maybe. The pointed revenge to me, maybe I'm like siphoning that away from, like, uh, like rakishness. But mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there's like a different. Maybe rogue is the word for that. But it does seem like a. It's like a cousin category mm-hmm. for me, because McKenna's like not pleasant to be around either. Like, 
<laughs> like he's he's so miserable because he's he's had this like revenge on his mind for so long. He he like intimidates everyone. So something about that like charming aspect of a rake seems also missing for McKenna. Yeah, and I don't think he would necessarily be like if he was full rake, I don't think that he would necessarily be a very good malevolent seducer because I think to be frank, I love McKenna. Well, I don't know yes. if I love McKenna, but like I I love this his book. Um and, yes. but I I don't think he's clever enough to be I think that you kind of But that's why the revenge doesn't make any sense. Yeah. He's like, I I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin her life by like By falling, falling in, in love. love. <laughs> it's kind there's a Sarah McLean book where the plan to for revenge is is to buy someone dresses. It's the green cover. She frames him for murder. One one good duke, one good earl deserves another. I think that's the phrase. But it, there's it's the um he the plan is he's like I'm gonna pay for her clothes and it's like this is gonna get my revenge on her. And it's like that's not a very good plan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's. Yeah, I, I feel like... I guess it's romantic. <laughs> no good no good Duke goes unpunished? No good Duke goes unpunished. It's a, gre- it's it's a, a green, green cover. cover. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the titles in in, cover, in books, I never remember them. But yeah, yes. McKenna's plan is similar in that vein where it's like, I'm going to I'm gonna kill her with kindness and romance. Yeah. <laughs> he, he showed up with the best intentions, but he needed the worst. I'm sorry. I just don't even understand that plan. <laughs> Which I'm not, why I'm not commenting. I'm like, what? <laughs> just buy her dresses that's yeah you get he, i guess it's like oh it's he's gonna he's gonna harm her by like controlling her but the control is very is mostly in, in like giving her favors indulging her, uh, which is not unlike mckenna's plan well, i guess he's like i'm gonna embarrass her by making her fall in love with me again not thinking that like and then that he, he would, would also fall, fall in love with okay. her again. <laughs> okay okay yeah. i can get on yeah. it like i said i want you to be absolutely horrible so unless he's like burning those dresses <laughs> <laughs> McKenna follows through. He does embarrass her a lot. So McKenna's is a little bit more. um, He does follow through, but it's like you you were going to fall back in love with her, obviously. Yeah. All right. Uh, Maybe let's do the Byronic rig. Yes. So according to Deborah Lutz in The Dangerous Lover, Gothic Villains, Byronism, and the 19th Century Seduction Narrative, quote, the Byronic figure eroticizes the voyager so important to the imagination of Western culture. The Byronic hero, particularly the Jower and Child Herald, remains disenchanted and always astray. He has no place in the domesticity of society. So I see the Byronic hero as a wanderer. He's in some sort of liminal space where permanency feels unreachable and where he feels unmoored. Uh, Child Herald is often referred to as being like Byron himself, like an aesthetic traveler, like the repetition of, but none did love him. Uh, and the Jower ends his poem in self-exile. Uh, so the end of every rake romance is that the rake is no longer a rake. He's discovered monogamy or he's sobered up. But for a Byronic hero to get his happy ending, which is a requirement of genre romance, he needs to be housed. He needs to find a sense of permanency. And that's accomplished through romantic love. Uh, so to quote Lutz again, love creates a dwelling place in space and time. Filling it up so that it becomes reachable, permeable, pliable. So my first Byronic rake is Graham. Black Silk by Judith Ivory is a Victorian historical romance, and the central relationship is between Graham Wessett, the Earl of Neatham, and Submit Shanning Downs, who is the young widow of Graham's former caretaker. So Graham was orphaned as a child and taken in by Henry Channing Downs, the Marquess of Montmarch. 
He was a beautiful boy, which kind of got him into trouble. So he had to be scrappier and tougher. He had to learn his aesthetic and embrace it. Graham wasn't more troublesome than his aristocratic children, but Henry, his caretaker, was unbelievably harsh on him. This is the beginning of a disconnect. The way that Graham sees himself, which is sort of aimless but affable man with ruthless charm and artistic interests, with how he is judged, first by Henry, then the world. He's seen as a villain, a reckless seducer, a criminal. Graham is at the center of a very public trial, and then later he is the clear inspiration for a serial called The Rake of Ron Moore, which exacerbates and villainizes real events from Graham's life. The public perception of Graham does not match up with his own. He tells his mistress, you are making love to a myth, the English upper-class rake. Graham's love story is incredibly complicated because Submit, his love interest, is the widow of the man that loathed him and arguably cast Graham into this mythical role. Submit's main challenge, aside from reconciling her feelings about Graham, who is a man she thinks she's not supposed to or allowed to love, is about her inheritance. Henry, who was ever spiteful, gave Submit all of his properties, which was a grave insult to his illegitimate son, William. William is taking Submit to court over the will because he wants her main estate, Montmarch. People might take me to task for being too literal here with housed and restored, but historical romance loves houses and estates, and I think the connection is valid. Montmarch is hotly contested, but in the end, it ends up going to neither William nor Submit, but to Graham. So we've spoken several times about the ruin of a rake, which I don't want to overdo it, but Courtney is a wonderful example of a Byronic rake, and he has a lot in common with Graham. Courtney is a wanderer. When the book starts, he's returned to England after years of traveling with his sister and nephew. Like Graham, Courtney is also being maligned in fiction. Graham is the lecherous rake in The Rake of Ron Moore, and Courtney is the devilish seducer in The Brigand Prince. Interestingly, they're both being maligned by their love interest. Submit takes up writing The Rake of Ron Moore after Henry dies, and Julian is the secret author of The Brigand Prince. They're both reputationally harmed by their love interests. And then Courtney also has his own housing problem. His mother, who hates him, is living on his estate. Courtney needs that house. Once he's bolstered his reputation enough to be involved in his nephew's life again, he plans to rent the house to his brother-in-law, Lawrence, from the Lawrence Brown affair, so he can be closer to his nephew. Julian aids in the restoration here. He's a natural problem solver and is able to help Courtney bolster up the nerve to oust his mother and take responsibility over his neglected tenants. So I think that like when we're talking about housed and restored, it's like there's like the physical houses in these books, but it's more about a sense of permanency because Byronic rakes are above all else wanderers. At the end of their storyline, uh, the end of their character arc, what it looks like for them to get a happily ever after is for them to be settled, to go from feeling untethered to have this romantic love that brings them home. One thing that struck me when you were talking, Chels, that the Byronic hero is a wanderer and they do find the sense of permanency, but I feel like that permanency is a person. So it's like Courtney is still, they still are like at the end of the book, like he goes to London because he has his duties in like the House of Lords and then they do other traveling stuff, but like Julian is his home. Like that's a sense of permanency. Mm -hmm. 
I think with Black Silk, there is like a location tied to it, like with the house. But I don't know. That's just what a thought that came to me is like it could be your person that you find depending on your Byronic rig. Yeah, it has to be done through romantic love. Like, I think the houses come into play because it's historical romance and because, like, I started to kind of notice that in the Byronic stories. Like, I think another one that I I kind of categorized with this, um, which I didn't talk about and I won't talk about at length, was um, Devil in Winter. Because, uh, like, mm-hmm. St. Vincent, like, he, it's not a literal house. Like, he has Evie, his love interest, who is kind of, like, his purpose. But he also has the gaming hell. Like, he has that sort of roots. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I've noticed in historical romance generally. When I see a Byronic rake, like, there's... And it could just be because there's a lot of properties. We like to talk about <laughs> properties. But I think that it kind of, like, fits so well. Yeah, for sure. And then another idea is I think for Byronic rakes the reputation is a little bit used being used uh-huh. against them or for like it's much more of a thing like it is with a lot of other rakes and other stories we've talked about but especially for the Byronic rake where they literally have publications talking about them yeah. and Graham talks about this in Black Silk where it's like for, for some reason Graham is attached to this image and he's sort of like there are people around him who don't get the same reputation and it's sort of like the snowball effect of reputation where it's like Graham is the fixation of these publications the fixation of these rumors while he's like keeping company with all these people who do just as bad things Mm -hmm. he's and it's like true from when he's a child to when he's an adult and it's like that's part of like the Byronic like what happens when a person becomes a myth and that like disconnect I'm also thinking about I'm thinking about Roy from Ted Lasso. <laughs> I feel like he's in the realm of Byronic Rake. He also has a ward where, again, he's like dealing with like myth versus person and like that disconnect. Like, how do you, how do you deal with your reputation? And when you're like, when you outgrow your reputation or you want to move past it? Yeah, for sure. I love the Ted Lasso reference. <laughs> Roy's reputation, I think, is just so much more like growling at the camera, <laughs> whereas like actual person is. He still is like that, but. He's not yeah. for the people. Like, he's kind of a softie, actually. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we can move on. Chelsea isn't on the Ted Lasso. Yeah, I, I don't watch like Ted Lasso, so I'm here. I'm like, let's talk about Black Silk, because I finally got my chance. <laughs> so going from Ted Lasso to another type of category, the Ray Kess, uh, the most obvious character to slot under this category is Serafina from the Ray Kess by Scarlett Peckham. Peckham says in her author's note that while working on a woman rake character, since most rakes are cisgender men, she realized the feminized version of the rake was the ruined woman. At the same time, Peckham read Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon, the dual biography of Mary Wollstonecraft and her daughter Mary Shelley. With these ideas, she infused Serafina with the Wollstonecraftian political ideology who embraced her ruination. Peckham doesn't soften Sarah's rough edges, which I think another author may have been tempted to do. At the beginning of the book, Sarah approaches Adam and offers a sexual relationship to hold them through their summer in Cornwall. After a bit, he agrees. Like other rakes, she excels at a one-dimensional relationship. However, when her relationship with Adam deepens, she struggles to convey her emotions. She's overly reliant on alcohol to dull some of the pain she's gone through. When she turns her cruelty on Adam, he leaves. He doesn't want to watch her self-destruct. 
Like Chels said in their newsletter, when Sarah achieves sobriety, she's wistful about what she could have had, and relieved to realize that the breakup left Adam similarly devastated. A rake goes through a similar character transformation that a rake will. Unlike other rakes, though, is how society treats a or Sarah in this book. A poor reputation can mar anyone, but the stakes are different for Sarah because of the double sexual standards between men and women. In one of Sarah's essays, she says, Why should a single rumor doom a woman for the same sin for which men are excused? These societal factors impact her relationship with Adam. He worries about how Sarah's reputation will impact his two children. Her reputation affects how she fits in her community at large. The citizens of Cornwall want her gone from the area. Someone, we come to find out the man who ruined her, leaves dead birds at her house. And this kind of seems like a regular thing she encounters. And this is quoting from the book. Serafina Arden had received many letters in her lifetime, letters mocking her appearance, letters decrying her low morals, letters wishing ill upon her health. Peckham's exploration shows us the fundamentals of the rake and how, by changing one aspect, gender, it can open up new kinds of growth and how that person operates in society is likewise treated by it. This book rules. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the rake And yeah, I think that, like, I kind of like thinking about categories of rakes i know generally rakes are gendered i mm-hmm. you know her kind of like oh i don't want to necessarily be like this is the woman rake category but like i think the rake yeah. test really requires that because it's the consequences of being a rake test the consequences of being seraphina are so demonstrably different than any other rake category like there's a uh gendered sexual violence that she's repeatedly at the center of like and, and even her and even her and Adam their 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 conflicts um the take on kind of a different tune like so Serafina's alcoholism is kind of what tanks her relationship with Adam uh, or at least kind mm-hmm. of like the biggest factor of it like her leaning into like oblivion in order to push him away because she's worried about being so dependent on another person and so you're kind of looking at it from that angle but like if you're looking at it from gender from kind of like the opposite angle so adam he works with the he works for seraphina's abuser essentially and he finds that out Mm -hmm. later and it's he's kind of in this weird position where like he has he kind of has to kowtow to this man who he doesn't like and he doesn't respect and he knows is kind of bad, but he has to provide for his kids. He has to, he, he's in a different space than Serafina. Like he has to kind of, his journey is kind of like learning that he can't really wave that away. Uh, and so like kind of on both aspects, there is a gender power aspect to it. Yeah. And I think Peckham does a good job of inverting the rake uh, like archetype for Serafina, where the the thing the it's not like she's just engaging with sex like her alcoholism is such a big part of her character and also like uh beth said like the surface level relationship and how that's like what she wants from adam to begin with mm-hmm. um because i think you could look at like oh the opposite of a rake is a fallen woman Serafina is not a fallen woman like mm-hmm. she she's her reputation has been ruined but she's like moved on from that as like as like the way that she interacts with the world, like people may think that she's ruined, but like a ruination happens one time, like a rake rakishness is like a perpetual thing mm-hmm. and she's continuing mm-hmm. to engage in it. Cause I think you could have a heroine who's been ruined and is like dealing with the fallout of that, but that still wouldn't be a rake It wouldn't be 
someone who is engaging with rakish behavior. It has to be this sort of like continued thing. And Sarah is able to do that because of a certain level of privilege and also like her ability to like make money based on her writing because she is able to it be independently wealthy based on her career. So it is different than a woman who has to make do with her reputation after like a one-time event of like a fallen woman. So it, it's it's not the the rakishness continues beyond just like the one-time sexual encounter that would create a ruined woman. So it, it is something different. And I think yeah, I think that's a really good point. And then but because it ends up being a series, like there's other characters that are in her orbit that are going to get books, but they're also there because they're like sh- that's her community. Mm-hmm. Like she's able to I think continue in this rakish behavior like you said she has a certain amount of privilege she makes money from her writing but she also has other people who are are in the same like think the same way that she does Mm -hmm. so she's able to keep living the lifestyle so the next category is dissipated rake you might remember the quote from the lives of the english rakes that listed out the vices of a rake which included sexual pursuits gambling drinking duels and brawls Uh, So heavy drinking is pretty common with fictional rakes, but it's not always problematized in the text. I want to be clear that when I'm talking about alcohol abuse, I don't see it as a character flaw. Addiction is not a moral failing, but it is something worth exploring in fiction. The dissipated rake has demons that alcohol exacerbates, and sobriety is a necessary component of his happily ever after in a lot of these fictional works. So The Rake by Mary Jo Putney is, for me, the quintessential dissipated rake story. Mary Jo Putney writes in Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women that, quote, anyone familiar with addiction and 12-step programs can read the book and see the hero, Reggie, go through the stages of denial, attempted reform and failure, and the final breakdown, the shattering of the will, that must be experienced before there can be a chance for spiritual and physical regeneration. The Rake is a very spiritual story at its core, and it sort of clicked into place for me when I saw Mary Jo Putney refer to the 12-step program, the most common of which is Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is not a religious group per se, but it was spawned off of a Christian revivalist movement in the 1930s. The group frequently holds meetings in churches, and focus is sort of on recognizing your lack of control and surrendering to a higher power. This is very effective for a lot of people who go through the program, but it's off-putting to others. And I feel like how you read The Rake is sort of tempered by this view as well. It's a polarizing work, but it has staying power because it resonates with a lot of people. So I'm not particularly religious, so I pulled something a bit different out of The Rake. Mary Jo Putney wrote that she wanted to actually see a rake have to answer for his drinking. And I think the reason she's successful here is that Reggie does some truly awful things on page that we have to grapple with. The romance in the rake is between Reggie and Alice Weston. The book was initially titled The Rake and the Reformer with Alice, who Reggie has nicknamed Allie, being the reformer. At the beginning of the story, Reggie, who also is the despair of the Davenports, is given the Strickland estate, his former home that has a lot of ghosts for him. Alice has been living at this estate and is working as a land steward, a position that she was able to get through some light deception. Alice is rightfully wary of Reggie, but they're drawn to each other and their romance flourishes. That is, until Reggie's drinking becomes untenable. There's violence in his drunken behavior. He breaks glasses, 
He looms over Alice. It feels like he's on the brink of doing something unforgivable. In the book, Reggie makes the conscious choice to stop drinking for himself. He notes after his third act breakup with Alice that though he missed Allie hideously, he was not truly alone, had not been so since the night he had been broken and reborn. So the next book I have is Scandal by Carolyn Jewell. It's a second chance romance where the entire book is a grovel. The romance is between the Earl of Benault and Sophie, who is the widow of his former friend, Tommy. Carolyn Jewell uses a dual timeline to reveal Benault's before and after, the dissipated rake, and the man who has to piece together his life after the wreckage. Benault is utterly, irrevocably in love with Sophie, but he knows that he's blown his chance by his past behavior. His missteps with Sophie weren't a direct result of his abuse of alcohol. He had the propensity for carelessness and cruelty already, but his drinking exacerbated these traits. In the early timeline, he first meets Sophie when he's plastered, but even in his bleary-eyed state, he still has a measure of control. They somehow form a friendship, but when Benault learns of the death of his daughter, he propositions Sophie and attempts to degrade her. Sophie's still married to her husband Tommy at this point, and Benault knows how seriously she takes her wedding vows as it's been a point of contention for them for some time. So when they meet again in present day, Tommy has died and Sophie is a free woman. Benault hopes he won't feel anything, that he won't be a knot at the mere sight of her. He is, quote, dismayed beyond words to realize that isn't the case. I think my biggest issue with the rake is that Reggie's sobriety is almost the happily ever after in a way that it overshadows the relationship. Uh, Benault has stopped his heavy drinking in the second part of the timeline in Scandal. The rest of the book is him having to convince Sophie of the sincerity of his courtship. So in that way, they kind of have a, a big difference. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about this one because this is something that even rake books that I enjoy, I sometimes wish like were discussed more directly. Like this is what a big issue that I have with Devil's Daughter and West Ravenel because he's very clearly characterized as an alcoholic when he starts the book. Like people are finding him and he he's like unable to control himself and people are worried about his drinking. But by the time we get to his book, it just sort of becomes like a non-issue. Like he doesn't it never really like backs up on him. It, at least in the way that it does in these books, where it, it is, like, treated like a health problem rather than just, like, a, an indulgence. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah, it's something that it's, like, it, it sort of runs through so many rakes where it, there's this, like, reference to them drinking heavily, and then they just suddenly stop, like, the, the, it, and it's just, like, a non-issue for them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, like, that's not really how alcoholism works. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I have much to say. I'm like, this is a very good book. <laughs> And I do agree. I feel like a lot of times it's not addressed directly or you brought up earlier that that's kind of like why, Emma, you brought up earlier that you like that we get a series and like in the before series because Leo in the Hathaway series, he also struggles with alcohol. But by the time we get to his book, he's kind of good. Like other things have been resolved before we get to to that book. And then it's just him trying to win over Yeah, his governess. Yeah, um, I think Leo and, and West both. Were, I think Clypus would characterize them as alcoholics, and then it's but yeah. they're it never. It doesn't seem to be like a 
like a health di- like disease for them for her it's more of like a, an indulgence um mm-hmm. i don't know if that's an unfair characterization but yeah and west west does like he does indulge at the end of the book like after the third act breakup he goes and like it's plastered and it's like oh i sh- i shouldn't have done that and i think he doesn't he doesn't drink in the books after the series mm-hmm. uh after mm-hmm. his book but it's not dealt with as directly as um the rake which i have read which is it just is it's dealt with like super directly so he, this isn't a rake book, but like kind of what I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of you're talking about Leo and you're talking about West is like another character who has abused alcohol in the past and that at the beginning of his book, like no longer does so. And that's a book we just talk about, The Duke of Harcastle and The Ruin of Evangeline Jones. And even then, it, even though he's not abusing alcohol in that book, it's still kind of a more interesting uh, interesting part of his character and it's kind of developed as part of his character more like the references to the fact that he has it's unusual that he has water in his hip flask um, and kind of like laying out his logic for why he he has kind of moved on like his reasoning for that instead of it just kind of being like oh I was bad then and I'm good now like there's kind of like more of a like he's still that person but he has to kind of make certain choices to remain that person yeah, it's still, I think you just closed what we were trying to say. Like, it's still part of who he is, even if it's not something that is part of that book. Mm-hmm. It's still motivating his character. It's still guiding his actions yeah. on what he's doing. So just part of my, like, extended Wes Ravenel fan fiction in my mind. But not addressed <laughs> in Devil's Daughter. You are the premier Lisa Klepas, uh professional her biggest fan her biggest enemy (laughs) (laughs) um do we have more we want to say or do we want to go to rake off okay so our next rake um just say just say the rake off character just say this next this next rake is rake off and this is a joke on the movie face off that's what i thought and i was like the podcast first john woo reference (laughs) (laughs) so the rake off character uses the rake persona as a distraction one question worth investigating with this kind of rake is where does the persona end and the actual person begin i find this highly relatable since a lot of social interactions we have are performances of a kind who brings out your true self who do you want to be your true self around in the Lotus Palace by Jeannie Lin, Bai Huang, the eldest son of a wealthy, noble family, flirts with the beautiful courtesan Ming Yu, although it's her servant, Yu Ying, he kisses in the dark. Yu Ying suspects there's more to him, despite his terrible poetry to Ming Yu. Bai Huang spies for his father, so he pretends to be rakish and dumb, although this tightrope walk blurs the lines between persona and self. He's not dumb, though, I should make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> the rakish part is the tightrope. In a scene where he questions another courtesan about a murder, he thinks this about her. She really was quite charming. If only it wasn't an act. In truth, it was an act, and it wasn't. Just as he was a scoundrel, and he wasn't. Yu Ying figures pretty early on that Bai Huang's behavior is a ruse, a cover for something more, and that cover provides the initial hurdle to their relationship. Similarly, we have another spy-ish character and the perks of loving a wallflower by erica ridley this is from chelsea's newsletter tommy winchester has a host of disguises but she's remarkably comfortable wearing one in particular that of charming rake baron vanderveen as the baron tommy finally approaches her longtime crush 
a blue stocking named Philippa, and they engage in a fake, but not that fake, courtship. <laughs> like Bai Huang with Yu Ying, Tommy wants Philippa to get to know her in truth, so she lets Philippa in on the ruse early. During one of their flirtations, Philippa tells Tommy that you need, needn't play the rake now when no one can hear you. Tommy's response is devastating. You can hear me. I haven't even read the book, but I was like, Dang, I know, that's Tommy. just like a mic drop of a line. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think this character is really fun for a lot of ways. So I think like, first of all, there's kind of like the obvious connection to the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I always think of also of like Lord Vare from his at night but he's not i don't really consider him a rake his disguise is rakish because it's too stupid he's just pretending yeah (laughs) he's like like, i think there's like a level of like suaveness you need to meet and like uh lord Vare Mm. and his at night by sherry thomas is like literally dribbling food over himself like he's (laughs) the charm is minimal (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think this is a really fun character and something that i've kind of noticed about like both with bai huang and tommy from uh the perks of loving a wallflower is that they both like kind of they're both spies or doing some sort of like spy type work they're both undercover but they Mm -hmm. both like bring their love interests into the plot uh they they -hmm. both are kind of like um maybe not as undercover for the majority of the book. Like it, it ends up being like, there's a, a fun kind of mutuality to it in both cases that I think I really enjoyed. Yeah. And I think pulling in the love interest is like speaking to that theme of, Hey, I want you to see me beneath this persona. Mm-hmm. Cause when they go like in Bai Huang and Yu Ying, they go on their little investigations <laughs> together. And I love that if you have like a lot of plot, it better be like you guys are, detectives yeah. together <laughs> for me to love it yes yeah, so i think it, it it's pretty tight writing i think when you can pull them in you get your investigation together the characters are getting to know each other and beneath that surface surface level so it just all ties together neatly and i think pretending to be a rake and also like that like line of like am i a rake am i is it is it a persona it speaks to like the benefits of being a rake. It's like this sort of the building of the archetype in the moment where it's like we have people being referred to as rakes, like in the actual Georgian and Regency period of this like level of access. It's like a rake is not necessarily just something that's like condemned or is sexy. It's like it's a level of charm that you get the benefit of this access to people because in it's like that that can come naturally because you're charming or because you're taking on this persona. And so, like, we talk about, like, reformed rakes, like, you want to leave the rakishness behind, but there is this, like, boon that you get from being able to charm people or, like, having that sort of, like, mystery around you. Um, so maybe you don't want to abandon all the rakish behaviors or you don't actually have to reform from all those behaviors, especially if you're play acting um, in some ways or another. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot to do with what people expect from you as well. Like, if you're just, like... I'm a rake, I charm people, and I like your what people expect from you is not gonna be as high. <laughs> you can get away with more things, I think. So that's you're right. I think there is some advantage to your rakish behavior, and we see that with these like spy characters who need access to people and not no accounting for what they've been doing. Yeah, like, and especially for, um, I mean, I guess for both of them, too, because, like, Tommy is pretending to be um, 
a man and uh, Bai Huang is mm-hmm. pretending to be like kind of like a sillier version of himself because he's still kind of like an aristocrat. He used to yeah, gamble. He's, like he's yeah. just kind of being like, um, but like you, you kind of have to get people off guard. Like you have to make them like, and then of course, if you kind of have, you know, the privilege of being seen as like a wealthy man, like people kind of automatically assume that you're intelligent, which is kind of silly, but, uh, but like, so you have to kind of do that extra work to go against that in order to go a little bit more under the radar, which is kind of what makes this character a little bit, a little bit goofy, but like in a really enjoyable way. Yeah. I don't know if this is a good comparison, but I, I did think of like Jack Sparrow the content warning for Taco Tree Depp, but that first movie was actually so refreshing, and it's because the reveal is he's actually very smart. <laughs> like he's playing it up. So there, I think that type of character in even other settings has a lot of appeal as well. Yeah. So this is our our last type of rake, um, and it's super ego rake. And I'm gonna borrow again from Charles's newsletter to explain the name of this. In Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theory, the superego is moralization, a drive for perfection. The superego instills a code of behavior learned by parents and society, and any infraction of those standards results in lingering guilt and shame. Superego rake is tortured by a lack of balance, obsessed with their own depravity, conscious of ways they fall short of expectations, and are armed with a healthy dose of self-pity. They're the David Foster Wallace quote fully embodied, that there's a lot of narcissism in self-hatred. Chell's listed Dane from Lord of Scoundrels as the superego rake in their taxonomy of rakes newsletter, and I think Dane's assuredness that everyone is thinking about him all the time is central to the superego rake. It's almost like a metacognition rake. What happens when you live at a time where a rake is even a thing that someone can be, and you are absolutely sure that this is all you can or could ever be? I think for Dane, he he's almost like the superego rake is almost like the opposite of the the rake off um, where it's like he's taking on this persona because he just assumes that's like all he can be. Everyone is characterizing Dane as a rake. So he's like, this is, this is the only avenue that I have. It's not, it's a persona and a role that he's taking on, but it's like a limiting one rather than an expansive one. Mm-hmm. And then another example of the super uh, ego rake is in Notorious Pleasures by Elizabeth Hoyt. Griffin is this character who has a severe case of second son syndrome and is rake on page. The heroine, who is slightly confusingly named Hero, walks in on him having sex in the first chapter, so we see rakish behavior from the get-go. But Griffin's reputation is really a framing issue. Most of his rakish behavior is ultimately innocent, and the worst part of his reputation is based on a falsehood that he does not correct out of loyalty to his family. Also, the main behavior that the heroine takes issue with, which is owning a gin distillery, is also in service of his family's finances. But the justifications of Griffin's reputation don't change his self-image. He's a reprobate until he can prove himself otherwise. He's sort of bought into the reputation that everyone is identifying with him. And then there's one more example that I have from Anne Mallory, Three Nights of Sin. Gabriel's rakish behavior, and he really identifies as bad and rakish, is actually pretty evolved sexual politics. I think this kind of gets into some of the appeal of the rake, at least on one vector. He has a notable lack of fetidization of Marietta, the heroine's virginity, He's very matter-of-fact about it, almost reaching virginity as a social construct that many feminist romance novels don't even get to. But Gabriel is an underworld mover and shaker, protecting people who are harmed by legitimate systems. He's convinced that he cannot be compatible with Marietta because of his reputation and occupation, because he's so wicked and so rakish. But not unlike Dane, he is a rake in response to a world organized against him. 
is a rake that is responding to a cruel and repressive unfair world really a rake i really like that book <laughs> you just like talking about it again i'm like i should reread it uh yeah. sorry oh that <laughs> book is really really devastating i'll move on to notorious pleasures and something that like is not really super relevant but i remember that always makes me laugh that you said about this book emma is that griffin invents child labor at the end of this he book. does <laughs> <laughs> This is, oh my goodness. This book is, I like this book as far as Elizabeth Hoyt books go. I, I read Elizabeth Hoyt a lot. I don't always love all the books, but this one is, the romance is really good, but then the solution to him owning the gin distillery is that he's going to employ children to like spin wool. It's also a Georgian book, so like factories don't exist yet. And so like the children are basically his like little machines. It's And it's like totally a good thing. It's very strange. <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was an interesting one to end on because it's like these rakes who are rakes deemed by society, but also their behavior is not actually that bad or like their rakish behavior is not bad. Like Dane does terrible things in Lord of Scoundrels, but they're not the things that make people think that he's a rake. Mm -hmm. It's like his mistreatment of his son, who's um, his like illegitimate child. It's like, that's the thing he needs to fix. It's not his like rakishness. Also, it's like nobody cares about Dane nearly as much as Dane cares about Dane. No. <laughs> He's just – and I think Gabriel similarly, Gabriel's bad behavior, are, it's like he's trying to help people. He's try, And he also is like really evolved. Like his his sort of response to sex is is very novel and Marietta is really surprised by it. But it's like that – if like that's like what you would want someone now is to sort of have like a sort of nonplussed attitude about virginity. That's like we would want that to happen. But at the time, it's like makes him seem like he's – he's bad or like a reprobate um yeah so well okay so like gabriel is like really and and three nights of sin gabriel is really aggressive to marietta so kind of like your initial perspective of him is kind of like oh he's he's bad like the way that he's kind of like perceived as being bad but like kind of like the more you get to know him and kind of like get to delve into like his reasonings you actually there's not really any reason why he should be particularly kind to Marietta kind of the same way that like his behavior like the things that have given him his rakish reputation like there's it's not really the way that it seems like there are kind of more heartbreaking reasonings behind it yeah and this one is like it is dual POV but it, I would think it's like an 80 20 split like mm -hmm. it's much more with Marietta than it is with Gabriel mm -hmm. so you really aren't getting his like explanation of like why he's doing these things it's just Marietta responding to him and so she has one view of like how do you respond to a rake who acts this way and it, it gets complicated through their relationship rather than complicated through his inner thoughts mm -hmm. I have no thoughts <laughs> I'm like rereading uh super ego yeah, I don't know. Dane's just obsessed with himself, and I love him for yeah. it. I think the, like, kind of, like, the, yeah, I think the kind of, like, the main thing that I always think of, like, the super ego rake is that they're, they're just, like, they they feel bad. They have, like, this guilt, and they kind of, like, and try to, like, push through it and to project something worse to kind of get past that. And that's kind of, like, how I see Dane. That's how how i kind of see gabriel too even though their their reasonings are vastly different like trying to manage their own reputation by making you think the worst of them yeah i feel yeah. like and for gabriel i think it's like more of a defense mechanism because of like the way that yes. his uh sexuality has been weaponized against him yes oh i just remembered that part of the book okay yeah <laughs> that book is really it's heavy been a minute. <laughs> if you're listening that book is really heavy but it's great 
Yeah, that was the first Anne Mallory I read, and I like became obsessed with Anne Mallory afterwards. She has such a range um, of like tone for mm-hmm. her books. Um, yes, and this one is yes. Bride Price is so vastly different in yeah. tone, like like the setup s- at least. It's still like kind of heavy. I started but... on the crazy grumpy sunshine one. Imagine reading that one and then reading <laughs> this one right after. I was like, what? my first one was the ghost one. Oh, like, oh really? <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> it's so wild. <laughs> well, that's that's a lot of recording so we should wrap up okay so we definitely have covered a lot of rakes in this episode uh so i hope that you maybe found a new favorite or that you are going to engage in your own bad behavior thank you so much for listening to reformed rakes we hope we're still your favorite rakes if you enjoy the podcast you can find bonus content on our patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates and inside jokes. The username for both is at Reformed Rakes. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.